my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Dick Clegg, OBE, MBE, who have just linked up with here, is without any doubt the most successful international course fishing manager England has ever produced. Between 1985 and 2000, you led your squad to an incredible six world team goals and nine individual victories. And I hear that at a more practical level, you was also quite an angler yourself, which surely can only be a bonus when it comes to reading venues and planning strategies to get the best out of your final team choice. So before we talk about being England team boss, tell us a bit about your own angling career and the path that would take to put you in the position of being considered for the England team boss role in the first place. Well, when I first started, I'd probably be about six or seven years old, and I went, to, obviously, like lots of people, and lots of anglers start, and that's going with your father, or grandparents, and uh, in this case, I went with my father to um, a local fishing pond, which was a compensation water for a, a local colliery. Strangely enough, because Alan Scotton and myself were, um, obviously, a few years later, Alan was born, but... He also, I think, started his fishing career at, at Rockingham Colliery Pit Pond, which is where I started. And uh, basically, as I said, it was down to my father. He was um, a miner in the area, and uh, one of the his pastimes was fishing. And so I started accompanying him to different places, and that's how I started. Which would ultimately lead to match fishing. So what was the attraction there? Well, match fishing-wise, I, I, I'm one of the strange um, phenomena in uh, in angling in, in reality because I actually am a convert from specimen hunting. What happened was that I went, I think, on a few junior, well, I know, on a few junior matches with my father, local workingman's club, fished a few matches, um, reasonably successful. But then when I got to, I went to uh, to grammar school, and from grammar school I sort of went out of fishing, so that between maybe... 14, 15, 16 years of age, I lost interest. And um, it was only when I, maybe I was 19, 20, when everybody turned to drink and women, which I tried to as well, I actually uh, did start fishing again. But it was more as a specialist angler. And most of my very late teens and early 20s, I used to fish in Yorkshire, going on the River Swale, the Ouse, the Nid, etc., during the winter, I used to go over to Ornsimere and into the fens doing some pike fishing. And uh, I was actually a founder member of the Northern Specimen Hunters Group and also a founder member then of the National Association of Specimen Groups, which I think now is called uh, NASA or something like that. And Eric Hodgson and Tag Barnes um, from those days, they were the top anglers and I did a little bit of journalism. I, I used to write for the Sheffield Angling Star, which was a, a weekly Saturday night sports paper. And it wasn't until I bought my first shop, which would have been, I'd be 28, 29, I went into partnership with my father and my brother. And it was from then that I started or restarted match fishing. And that was, again, with the influence of the anglers that were coming into the shop. The shop was in Huddersfield, and uh, the local club, the big club in the area, was Slowiton District. And um, I basically started because I was asked by members, you know, come along, let's get going again, and that's what we did. So how far, then, did you get on the match angling scene, either as an individual or as a team member? Nationally, one of my first big competitions was fishing with Shetland District, who were uh, in the first division. Well, in fact, there was only one division in those days, and we won a bronze medal on the middle-level drain. And from then on, I used to fish on the River Trent. I had lots of success in open matches, 120, 150 pegs. 
I won the first televised match at Weirwood Reservoir, which was an invitation to all the top anglers in the country, or a number of top anglers. It was an Angling Times-sponsored event that they managed to get televised. I won uh, the Hagen Egg, which was the biggest uh, event on the middle-level drain. Brought the record for that river. Lots of other river records as well. I also won the last of the Embassy, which is a 20,000 entry competition. I won the individual there in uh, finishing up winning the final in Northern I- in sorry in Southern Ireland on the River Barrow. I also won what is now the UK Championships, the first one, which was, as far as I was concerned, was the best type to win because it was a series of, uh, of four matches where the top 60 individuals were invited to compete. So I was very successful, and um, it was during this particular time that I was also again found a member of the most famous angling club in the country, which was the Barnsley Blacks. And between Tom Pickering, Dennis White, Keith Hobson, myself and a number of others, we formed what was the probably for more than a decade, 20 years, and, and as actually as a resurgence recently. But at the time that I was captain of that particular team, we won just about every competition there was to win. And um, as I said, we were the most formidable outfit and probably still, over the years, the most recognised team in the country. During your practical angling days, did you ever harbour any ambition to take over the running of the team? Or does that sort of thing evolve without deliberately targeting it, culminating in the invitation being made? Well, with the England team, the, the setup there was that um, at the particular time, Stan Smith was the manager of the England team and had been for a good number of years. Now, England, under his charge, had never won the World Championships. But in saying that, Stan was a good manager. He probably didn't carry the little bit of luck. No matter what anybody ever says to you, angling is about luck. There is nobody that can catch a fish where there are no fish. So you have to have that element. And you, apart from being a particularly good angler, to win a competition, you also have that little bit of, uh, of luck where you withdraw the area where there are fish to be caught. Now, Stan Smith was unfortunate in that the years that he was in charge of the team, he had some good anglers. Perhaps Stan's one failing was that he didn't... Um, he had the respect of the anglers, but not as an angler himself, and I think that's where he let himself down, in that he would dictate tactics, I believe, and maybe those tactics weren't correct. But he was, as I said, very unlucky, because sometimes the, the England team had finished second, and, you know, where they had problems with weather and with other things. You know, I'm, I'm defending him because he was a good manager, but without that luck element, and unfortunately he didn't win. Now, when I took over, which was in 1984, the NFA at the time, the National Federation of Anglers, who were the governing body in England, and though there's a, that's where the team represented uh, England through FIPS, which is the international body, Federation International de la Peche Sportive, the National Federation of Anglers, they sent a team, and the manager of the team, Stan Smith, was asked to re-nominate because some of the committee felt that it was maybe time for a change, but depending on who nominated for that position, if Stan again put his name forward, if the nominees weren't as good or they thought they weren't going to be any better than Stan, then he could have retained his job. Well, he refused to do that. So at the time, I was looking at the situation and thought, yeah, I think I fancy this. I think that I could do a job. And... um, I was one of the, I think, seven people who nominated. My main rival was a, a man called Dennis Salmon, who at the time was uh, also manager of a, a successful team, Essex County. And 
basically, I think it was down to either one of the two of us was going to get the job. Unfortunately for Dennis, and I, and I say this, although I, I, I'm going to say that I think I made a better manager than he, he did, but in saying that, he was successful with Essex County, but one of his problems was he refused to fly. So it meant that if he was going to the World Championships all over Europe, the logistical side of getting there with the team and everything would have meant maybe either travelling overland and or using a train, etc., etc., and that was never going to be on because in those days the overland travel because of the vehicles, etc., and the cost of it was never going to be an issue. So there was a committee of five or six people. I went for the interview and I was successful. So in 1984... I was chucked in at the deep end because Stan Smith, who, as I said, had not renominated, refused to talk to me. And so I went in as green as grass, basically, at international level anyway, and finished up having to go and look after, in 1984, the first of my 17 years of selecting teams. As someone who knows very little about the job, would I be right in comparing it to, say, England football team manager? We have a group of very talented individuals which are used on an occasional basis. Bolt must be fully up to speed with it at all times and try to keep on board even when they don't make the final cut. Uh, well, Phil, in, in those days, you, you have to remember this. First of all, the team weren't sponsored. The money that previously had been used for the team was NFA funded. And what happened was that a friend of mine who also actually did nominate for this manager's position, Malcolm Burdett, it was the commercial manager of the Barnsley Blacks team, bearing in mind, so there were two of us from the same team nominated. I don't understand why Malcolm ever nominated, because he was never, ever going to get the job, because his practical knowledge of angling was maybe only 5% of any of the other nominees. But he was logistically a good person to, to have in the fold, and um, what he did, he got a small sponsorship from Steadfast, who was a manufacturing um, company based in Sheffield, and they provided us, I think, with £6,000 or something like that. That meant that I was able to go out, and the first time was in Switzerland, and Kevin Ashurst, who was, if you want, the number one of the team at that particular time, I rang him up, Kevin, I said, and he was a friend of mine, I'd known him for years and fished against him and with him in other competitions, and said, Kevin, I'd like you to go out with me to Switzerland to check out the venue. And in his typical Lancashire sort of laid-back attitude, he said, um, Dick, you don't need me, you can do it yourself, get out and look at it. So I did do that, went out, looked at the venue, came back, put together a package, we flew out to Switzerland, Kevin left his passport at home, um, which was a bit of a dilemma. We were told never to leave the airport until this passport came, but anyway, we finished up um, and we were actually joint winners, but lost out on a weight count back. So my first year in was the best result that England had ever had when we finished second, only losing on weight. And um, the following year was in Italy, and we went to Italy. Again, I went out, and this time I did take Kevin. I took Kevin and Bob Nudd. We went out to look at the venue. We came back. I selected a team who I thought was right. Dennis White, Tom Piccarini and Eaps, Dave Roper, they made up the rest of the team. Alan McAtee came along as well. So I took seven people out and five fish, and we won. We beat the Italians in Italy. Absolutely fantastic. The first time England had ever won the Phipps Championship. And so really, from then on, my position was not so much easy, but didn't have the pressure that Stan Smith had, had experienced in his time there. And individually, all these people, and I think it was just a case of they respected me because of uh, I had a personal ability, but also because I managed the team and man-managed them better than what Stan had done. 
And as you can appreciate, every person has a different temperament. Every person has to be treated differently. Some you have to be hard, some you have to be delicate, some you have to be really forceful and, uh, and point out where the deficiencies are. But once you put a team plan together, you expect them all to work together. And very fortunately, in the first few years of my period of manager, that is what they all did. And it was very, very successful. And it wasn't just down to me, obviously, that. It was down to the team itself working as a group rather than individuals, five of them fishing individually. They all fished to team plans and the individual honours were out the window. But in saying that, that didn't really happen because we won more individual medals in the 17 years that I selected the team than we did team medals. And over the 17 years, I think I had six goals and um, we had, I think, 13 medals altogether team-wise out of 17. We had nine individuals gold medals and I think it was about 14 medals all told. So it was all to do with the team working as a team. It's not just the manager. The manager does help. Bank runners on the day, very, very important. But the team working together is the most important part of any manager's job, getting them to gel. I'm equally interested to know what happens behind the scenes leading up to team selection. How do you choose one individual over another? Are there, say, practice elimination matches? And when the final team is named, how are they briefed in terms of approach, team orders and the like? What you have to remember is that, first of all, you're going on different venues. During the last 30 years when I've been in charge of running the teams in England, because I'm still responsible for all of the teams and the managers I select and fire. Now, what happens is, or what happened in the early days is that, firstly, all competitions were three-hour competitions. In England, you never get that. You you still don't get that. The five-hour competitions, and to change from five to three was very, very difficult. If you got your tactics wrong in the first hour... It was going to be very, very difficult to come back, especially at the teams that had got practical knowledge on the venue. Not only that, but a lot of restrictions were involved. You had a restriction on bait. Bloodworm and Joker was not something that we used to a great extent in England, and many of the matches were on that kind of venue. Lots of them involved, in some cases, carp fishing, which in those days, carp was not one of the, the species of fish that you match fish for in England. In the early stages, the first day was the competition for team. In the second day, you qualified by finishing in the top three in your section to fish for individual honours. It was very, very hard to change people's concept of a match in that five hours down into three hours under different rules, totally different rules. Remember, most of the people in England, and still are, in competitions, all things count. Like you can fish a competition using a a swim feeder, using lead on the bottom. There are so many different rules and regulations in the early days that it was very, very difficult. And what I decided to try to do was to ask, uh, no, sorry, not to ask, but to select members who were... In my opinion, horses for courses. If I thought there was somebody better at waggler fishing, I would try to select him. If there was somebody better with bloodworm and joker, I would select him. And a couple of times I was actually brought to task by people complaining, even team members, that they'd been left out. Well, quite frankly, they were totally out of touch. They thought they were invincible, and they weren't, because by changing tactics, by changing team members, we were very, very successful. And you cannot dictate to everybody that they have to be part of a team that doesn't listen, that doesn't work together. And I did get that with one or two members. 
they all actually finished up realizing that it was team first and that I wasn't selecting friends. I wasn't selecting anybody who I didn't think was exactly right for that particular job. Everybody had a chance that is, the, unfortunately, because of the expense, and remember this, everybody is a volunteer, nobody gets paid. There's no payment for being a world champion unless you pick up a sponsor after it, but going and representing the country, you don't get paid for it. The management don't get paid for it. I have been a volunteer doing 80, 90 days a year, unpaid, trying to work in a way that would be best for the team. And all the people concerned, as I said, they themselves don't receive any payment. So it's very, very difficult to tell people you have to go and practice here, you have to go and practice there. They've got their own lives to live and they can only spend so much time going fishing, going practicing, etc. So practice sessions were limited. I've, so I've, I've spent a lot of time here, maybe digressing a bit. But I think that the um, uh, like with the practice session, we used to go out, spend a week, come back home and then go out for the match three days. The reason behind that was because the rules laid down by Phipps meant you couldn't fish the venue for the two weeks prior to the match. So we had to go out, come back and expense twice because we were travelling both there and back on two occasions. But now what's happened since then, all that has changed and now you can practice, you actually do practice all the week. Lots of things have changed and it's for the better because you can actually practice on the venue Providing that you are 500 metres away, you can go and have, and have a month there. In the past, you couldn't do it. But also, the, the sponsorship is much better now. The team is highly sponsored by Drennan, and it allows the team manager to be able to say to his squad, like, you go out there, you practice, we'll come out the week before, we'll all practice together, we'll select the team, on. we've taken a squad of anglers over there, we'll select the team, and that's what happens now. So there is a lot more practice available now, because of the fact that there is more money available. When you run a practice session, what are you as a manager looking for? Is it overall form through direct competition, or perhaps expertise in specific areas known to favour that match venue? And what happens if conditions change on the day of the match? Phil, let me just clear this situation up. I decided in 2000 that maybe I'd lost a little bit of motivation and that it was probably time for me to stand aside and I had been using Mark Addy and Mark Downs as uh, as my assistants for the past few years. So I asked them both if they would want to take over and it was a, a bit controversial in that I selected two managers because I said at the time there's no one person, especially if they're working, there's no one person can give up the amount of time that it requires to run this particular team. And so two people working together the workload would be shared and they have been highly successful since then. And the idea behind that was that because of me standing down, or stepping aside, not standing down, that they would be able to look at teams, look at individuals, etc, etc. Now, because of the very nature of the beast, they have almost kept the same team for, I think, 10 years now, making only one change in that 10 years, and that has allowed all these anglers to become international anglers rather than national anglers representing England once a year. They go all over Europe, they get invitations to go to different venues from different countries. Some of it's paid for, some of it can be by the, the people that invite them. And so they have a lot more international experience. By keeping these sort of eight or nine people together, 
it's created what I would call a little academy of anglers. They, they can choose um, the right people for the right job. Now, in my day, that was uh, almost impossible, as I said, because of travel, because of expense. And I used to use my own logic to decide who I should invite from the records that I'd heard about, from talking to people, from having, if you want, unpaid advisors, scouts, if you want, like a footballer. And I, I used to have people in the south, in the Midlands, telling me I should keep my eyes on different people. And that's what I used to do. But now it's easy. I'm saying easier. It's easier because of the technology. Technology has made it easier for people to uh, communicate. There's a network of guys on the continent that all managers, if they want to go to some places in Serbia or Slovenia or Portugal, they've got contacts there they can ring up. And it's got a little easier in that respect because of the way that the whole international scene has become accessible to everybody. Now obviously, you will have seen and selected a lot of very good course anglers in your time, all with different abilities and temperaments. But behind the scenes, what are they like as individuals? Who, for example, was the best of the best, or the perfect team player? And who was the most deserving angler never to win top honours? Um, I'd like to start with one of the last things that you asked me there, and that was the, the best angler never to win a world championship. And that is without doubt, and I don't think anybody anywhere would ever disagree with the fact that Steve Gardner, who has now represented, I think, England on 26 consecutive years, the longest serving angler, I think, from any country. He has been a silver medalist. He's never won a gold, but he has been... I think 12 times, I think it's, tw no, not, not 12 times, um, it's maybe 11, 10 or 11 times a gold medal team winner and actually fished in the team rather than being a reserve. He is without doubt the most, uh, un if you want, unlucky angler never to have won a world championship. And I'm going, not just England, from any country, he's phenomenal. He's nearly always, or was in the early days anyway, the first on the team sheet. When you selected a team of uh, from the six anglers that you were using, what happens is that you're allowed to fish six anglers during practice. And basically, what you've done before then is you've selected those six anglers yourself, or in this case, there's a joint managership now. Mark Addy, Mark Downs, they actually select the six that they want to take. And during the week's practice, they decide, usually by Thursday, which five are the best five for that particular venue. I used to do exactly the same thing. I used to, we used to have a practice morning, practice afternoon, move them up and down the bank. It was very, very difficult. And then you had to make the decision by the end of the week who was going to be left out. Now that is the hardest, hardest day of my life within that year to leave out somebody that spent, first of all, since he's been selected, he's had six months in which to think about it. And then he gets there and he puts his heart and soul into the event and he's left out for the big day. Very often they actually do get to fish on the second day, but more, maybe 50% of the time. And the thing is that for, for me to turn around and tell somebody, I'm sorry, you're not fishing tomorrow, then it's heart-rendering, it really is. And I'm just glad that, I mean, I had to do it with Kevin Ashurst, who was recognised as probably the best angler that England had got at that time. So I'm not individually picking out any particular anglers here. What I am saying to you is that one of the good things about when I gave up was I didn't have to tell the likes of Bob Nudd that he wasn't in the team. And certainly whoever has to tell Alan Scott and he's not in the team, 
And unfortunately, I think this year, 2013, Steve Gardner was left out of the team. He was in the squad, but left out the team. It's so difficult for the manager to get that guy to one side and say, I'm sorry, mate, you're not, the, you're not in. Because not only are you part of a, a, a successful working relationship, but you, you do become friends with these people. And it is so very, very hard. So for you to ask me who's the most unlucky angler not to uh, be individual, then Steve Gardner is. Um, for you to say to me which angler is the best angler, it's very, very difficult for me to select somebody. But you have to say five times Alan Scott Owen. I mean, I've known Alan longer than anybody else in the England squad because Alan was at 13, was part of my Barnsley Black squad. So, and he's now 51, I think. So I've known Alan for all of those years as an angler and a travelling companion, etc. But his ability is absolutely immense. He's, um, he's well, he, he proved it by five times winning the World Championship. But the easiest person to work with, there really isn't an easy person, but I suppose... Bob Nudd was quite easy. Bob was highly intelligent. He could turn his hand to almost anything. He didn't have it in those days as well, because Bob finished in 2000, basically the year that I gave up. He didn't have the um, the backing of, of a huge sponsor. He was sponsored individually, but he just had a natural ability, Bob, and he was easy peasy to work with. Um, if I asked him to do something, he would do it. If it was totally against his wishes, he'd still get down and do it. No arguments. And if I wanted to use somebody as an experiment to, to try different methods that maybe or maybe didn't work, then Bob would get down knowing that perhaps he was giving up a day or two days of fishing that might jeopardise his chances of being selected. But he never said no. He was brilliant at that. And as far as team's concerned, I can't single out any team. What I can tell you is that on two occasions, as far as I'm concerned, there were two years in 94 in England when we won at home Pierpont. It's the first time, and there's nobody can take that away from me. I was manager when we won it at home Pierpont, the gold medal, and Bob Nudd was world champion again. It was brilliant. And of course, the first time England won it was in 1984, and I was manager for that, which was in Italy on the Riverano in Florence. Uh, absolutely two of the most outstanding performances. But that, that you know, to select a te any team, I'm not even saying that those two teams were the best teams. Perhaps they weren't, but certainly those two will remain in my memory as the two most important and delightful years that I've ever had in World Championships. Singling out one individual myself, if I may, Ian Heaps once told me that despite his form, he could never understand why he was dropped from your lineup, but believes it was because of Malcolm Bedett and a photograph taken by the steadfast MD of Ian wearing a damn cap while handing out tackle items to some kids after the World Championships on the River Moselle in Portugal. In an interview for this archive, Ian states that Malcolm Bedett who looked after the sponsorship side of things at that time, presented you with the photograph and said, this man must never fish for England again. What would your comments be regarding that? Well, let me just say this, absolute bull. I have never heard such a ridiculous statement in the whole of my life. In fact, it's just funny. <laughs> if I thought it was serious, I just can't believe that anything that Ian has said anything so ridiculously stupid as that. Malcolm Bedett, first of all, I've got no influence whatsoever on any selections. Neither had Steadfast or any other team sponsor. Peter Drennan has got no influence on selections. And 
anybody that says that is, well, they're just not thinking straight. My idea of selecting team members was to select who I thought were a little bit horses for courses. Now, Ian Heaps was singularly one of the best float anglers in the world at that particular time. And he came along on the first five or six times that I had him. Let me just think, I, I can't quite recall when I left him out. But certainly for five or six years, he was part of the team. And as far as I recall, Steadfast weren't even sponsoring us at the time that I, I left him out of the team. Maybe I'm wrong with that, but it certainly didn't affect my selection. If I'd have thought Ian was right for the job, he would have been selected. And to say that is rather foolish on his part, because it's certainly not true. As far as I'm concerned, if I left Ian out, there was only one reason. I didn't think he was right for that particular event. And it's the same with anybody else. In fact, I'll give you an example. One of the national papers, angling papers, Angling Times, when I selected for Belgium in 1988, we had just won in Portugal, including Ian Eaps in the team, by the way, in 87, and Dennis White and Tom Pickering. They were three of the people in the team. I took Ian Eaps to Belgium, but what I didn't take was Tom Pickering and Dennis White. Now, Tom Pickering and Dennis White had been fishing with me as members of Barnsley Blacks and of the England team from me taking over. And I selected them in the first place because I thought they were right for the, for the job and they proved they were. When we went to Dammer, which is in Belgium, we fished a canal. It was going to be an out-and-out bloodworm venue. And I left Dennis White and Tom Pickering out of the team. Now... They were friends of mine, so I'm, this is one of the things I'm telling you. I, I don't select friends. What I do, I select anglers. And I left them out, and one that was in the paper next week, the following week after I'd announced the team, there was a photograph of, of Dennis White and Tom Pickering with an axe stuck in the head. And the headline was, Dennis White and Tom Pickering axe from the England team, which was a little bit, I thought, a bit naughty, again on angling time, but again, journalists tend to do that, so you accept it. And what's happened is that Dennis White made a silly statement, and he made a statement saying that I was out of order, basically, that he was as good as anybody, etc., etc., and he should never have been left out. Well, he got picked the following year, not because of any other reason than it was a different venue again, and he was right for the job. Now, Dennis White, I told him, I said, don't ever say that again or you won't get picked. But I picked him because he was right for the job. No other reason. And Ian Eaves didn't get picked that time because he wasn't right for the job. So whatever Ian says, he's totally and utterly out of order saying it. It's not true. What is it then that makes a good England grade course match angler? It's very difficult to answer that question. There's so many different types of things that you have to be and have to do. You have to be dedicated. You have to commit a lot of time. You have to commit effort. You have to listen. You have to learn. You have to have a, an awareness. You've got to almost think like a fish. It's not something that you can actually um, define easily. Well, I, certainly I can't in words because um, you can learn. You can grow with it. I think internationally you have to have an apprenticeship. I once told Alan Scott one that nobody under 30 was able and capable of fishing for England team. And I think, I still think that I'm, I'm, I'm almost right with that. There are one or two that have been involved. I certainly invited at least one angler who was under 30 at the time to be part of the squad. And that's Will Raisin. But since then he's proved me that he's, maybe he's proved me wrong. But in saying that, I do think that internationally you have to have a lot of experience. But it's very, very difficult. There's so many different kinds of anglers as well in England. There's feeder anglers, there are float anglers, there are pole anglers, there are 
lots of different species of fish, some are better at catching carp, some are better at catching roach and bream, etc. So it's very difficult to decide how to analyse and how to describe an angler and what he has to be and do. It's just an accumulation of all sorts of different things. Moving forward now, with the course match scene having changed so much since your time in charge, due in part to mainly smaller matches and a growing obsession with carp, do you think that the job, not only of picking the right squad, but possibly even finding one good enough, has now become more difficult? I'll tell you what, Phil, yes. Basically, there was a transition period in my... uh, As I said, I've been there 30 years now. But in the middle of that 30 years, because there was obviously... um, an explosion of commercial carp fisheries and it became easy for people to go and bearing in mind in the first place there's lots and lots of these well I'm saying lots of them a number of these commercials were quite big and attracting a hundred anglers or more in some of them because when the, you know the bigger ones were attracting that many 80 or 100 anglers a good match but because of the demise of the rivers not just rivers like the Trent and the uh, the Severn and, and the Swale etc like the Lincolnshire Drains rivers, River Witham, Welland, Neen, etc. The lack of fish and the difficulty meant that the um, the anglers themselves, they decided, right, we want to go and catch some fish, and the best way to catch them was to go to commercials. Now, commercials meant carp. In most cases, it meant carp. Some of them have got silverfish in. They put hide in, and they put, obviously, lots of skimmers and, and roach and things like that, but mostly it was carp. And so the angler became obsessed with carp, and that was in the middle period. But in saying that, what's happened recently is that in the last sort of eight or ten years, there has been a series of competitions now that usually start about this time of year, October time, and they have silverfish matches. And so there is a lot of people now turning to that. I mean, I only recently, uh, I'm involved in one of these silverfish leagues, and um, we get 40, 50, 60 anglers fishing that. And it does help with international standards and bait restrictions because that's what happened. You're looking to catch silverfish. Now, silverfish basically, <laughs> unfortunately rather, are not always the kind of fish that when you go on an international, you expect to catch lots of places now like Spain, Italy, one or two other spots. There's considerable amount of carp being caught. In some cases, there are big eyed, there are barbel. So it does help to have a knowledge which you can gain from commercial fisheries. But in saying that, yes, I think that what happens, or what what has happened, is that the tendency to go to commercials and make smaller matches, it doesn't really matter how many people's in a match, you've still got to win it, but it depends on the time of year. Mark Downs runs what he calls a census challenge, and that census challenge is run through the winter, unfortunately. If it was in the summer, I would appreciate it much more because what it does, it's a a competition to international rules. And he gets quite a few teams involved in this. He has them running all over the country. must have got 40, 50, 60 teams. So it's become very popular. So not everybody has gone commercial match fishing. There is still a big nucleus of anglers who want to continue fishing what you would call natural waters. There has been a decline. But I don't think it's been internationally anyway to such a detriment. In some cases, it's helped a little. What then are your thoughts on the current obsession with carp, and for that matter, with high-protein baits and bolt rigs, which are claimed in some circles to be lowering the skill levels of anglers generally and removing the basic tools once essential for learning the trade? I think everybody has a different opinion on fishing. I'm not a a great believer in um, 
I certainly don't think that bolt rigging of any description should be allowed. And I know that with method feeders, lots of commercial fisheries, especially you know when we're talking about carp, have actually um, not so much made a restriction, but they have got rules in place, which means that the method feeder has to be running on the line, which then means that any fish that breaks doesn't have to trail around with a method feeder uh, dragging behind it. So that side of it is okay. I, I do think that um, some of the restrictions that there are in place should be a, a, a little bit stricter. But fishing is all about catching fish, and I'm not a great believer in banning too many things and too many methods. Getting back to the managerial side of things again, has the role of England manager changed since your time, and if so, how? Maybe, as with many walks of life these days, managers have become less specialist and more administrative. I don't believe that's the case in the England setup. This year I've been also with the ladies. The ladies won in Slovenia this year and the management were absolutely brilliant. The juniors uh, under Steve Sanders in France absolutely paralysed the best result ever for an under-18s team. The uh, under-23s were second and with Mark Downs in charge. The seniors team, or the nation's team, went to Poland and absolutely paralysed it. So there is no problem with the management. The management is not just to do with logistics and getting a, a team to any particular uh, venue. The management has to, yes, do all the admin side of it with hotel bookings, flight bookings, etc, etc. But the decision to fish always rests with a decision that is made by the group of anglers fishing and the two managers. And I tell you now, the managers have got the last say. If they say you are going to and the angler doesn't, then as far as I'm concerned, that angler is, if you want, is yellow carded and left out if necessary, because they have to work together. It's very, very important. You can't take a non-angling manager. This is one, it's, it's a little bit like football. Maybe you don't have to be the best footballer to become the best manager. I think Ferguson's uh, proved that. He was a good footballer, but he wasn't a world class. Mind you, his, his new controversial book that he's, uh, he's put out uh, <laughs> might change all of that. But yes, it's the same with angling managership. Mark Downs, a very, very accomplished angler, fish for England. Mark Addy, a very, very accomplished angler, fish for England. Both of them managers of two of the most successful club teams in the country. And so they have that ability and the anglers know that. And if, one of the things that I was able to do was to, uh, when the team was practicing, is to watch the uh, anglers themselves, see what they're doing. And I, when we had a meeting, which generally was on an evening after every day's practice, and I would go around the team and say, right, I want your thoughts on it. And so each angler then had a five or ten minute spell telling us how he caught fish that day. And if they left anything out... I jumped on them and told them, hang on a minute, you actually did something else. And if I thought it was being kept to, for that one man's personal expertise to make sure he got into the team, then I would highlight that and he would then have to be, he could be criticised then with the rest of the squad. And you could hear the banter on the bank. The banter on the bank would be, how did you catch that? What did you do? And it was transferred all the way down the uh, the six or seven men that were uh, were practicing, so everybody knew what was being caught and how it was being caught, and that's what you get. But don't ever think that the manager is not important. As far as I'm concerned, there's six men in a squad. There's two managers now, and that's what it is. It's an eight-man squad, five of which will fish. And now you're international events manager for the Angling Trust. 
So what exactly does that job entail? Um, right, well, first of all, the Angling Trust has, uh, the last five years have taken over from the National Federation of Anglers. And um, I am responsible and have been since 2001 for all the teams that represent England course fishing wise. That is the ladies, the juniors, the men's, the disabled, etc, etc. And my responsibility is to select the managers. So I place the managers. I selected uh, uh, all the managers that look after the team. Tom Pickering with the feeder team, Dave Brooks and Joe Roberts, Steve Sanders, Mark Downs, Mark Addy, etc, etc. If I've missed anybody out, um, sorry about that. But um, those are the team managers and it's my responsibility. They are directly responsible to me for their actions and for the results, etc, etc. And we have not some, we, we only have one or two meetings a year because of the expense. It's difficult to get everybody together and it's an expense to get people together. As I said, they're all volunteers. And so um, the Angling Trust basically represent the uh, governing body in England and FIPS ED or SIPS, which is the umbrella body from FIPS. The Angling Trust are the recognised sport body from UK. So therefore, the Angling Trust themselves are responsible for sending any teams. Unfortunately, the Angling Trust at this moment in time are not the most financially viable company. They basically have very little money to be able to sponsor any team because they also are representative of the um, sea fishing and the game fishing. So we have to find all the money ourselves to compete in internationals. Fortunately, we have one or two good sponsors. We have Drennan International who sponsor the men's team and the uh, under-23s. We have Census who sponsor the under-18s. We have Corder who sponsor the carp team because I'm also responsible for the carp team. Um, we have Preston's with the feeder team. Uh, I don't think I've left anybody out. But the ladies, the veterans, the disabled, and we've got a lure fishing team also, they have to find their own sponsorship. So the older people concerned that fishing those teams have to pay their own way. And it costs them between 1500 and 2000 quid each to represent their country. We are probably the most successful sporting body in the history of English international competitions. And yet, Sport England don't recognise that fact with any money. So, at this moment in time, we are looking for sponsors for those particular teams. But we have, as I said, all the individuals have to pay for themselves. I suspect it's taken as read that all sporting managers have the high points and the lows. Also, the frustrations. But looking back, how do you see your time in the role? Well, I've been, I think, the most fortunate and one of the most selfish people in angling. Nanette has put up with me for 30 years, more than 30 years, because 30 years as the international manager. Prior to that, I was also looking after Barnsley, which was another time-consuming uh, managership. Without her support, without her looking after everything, my house, she looks after all the finance, etc, etc, I wouldn't be able to do what I've done. The good thing about it and the highlights of my career are not just the accolades that you get from the press and from people and from being on the rostrum and having tears in your eyes when they play the national anthem, because I certainly do, is that on two occasions I've been able to take my family to Buckingham Palace and receive an MBE from the Queen, followed by, later, an OBE from Prince Charles. And those things 
I think, compensate a little for, um, you know, the time that she's had to give up for what I've achieved. And I think that um, the low time is when you have to, I've already mentioned it, you have to tell people they're not in the team. The high times are when you're on the rostrum, and as I said, when the National Anthem plays, I tell you now, (laughs) I'm like jelly. Because I'm so proud of being there, representing England, and in that position, and the team members will tell you, especially the the last two years, this year with the ladies team in Slovenia was absolutely unbelievable. And one of the good things about it is that because I'm on a FIPS technical commission, I'm, I'm also, by the way, a representative of the international body on rules and regulations and setting all the um, restrictions and everything. So I have a meeting every year, generally now in Italy, and one of the things that the highlights is being able to present medals generally to the teams that I represent. In other words, the England team, and when the veterans win it, I'm the one shaking the hands, and when the ladies win it, it's absolutely fantastic. So that is the highlight, and there really isn't any low lights. It's just, as I said, just the horrible time when you have to say to somebody, sorry, mate, you've not made the team. And despite everything, have there ever been any regrets? I'm sure there has. But I think the successes have sort of overshadowed any regrets. I've made one or two decisions that I would have liked to change, and it could have resulted maybe in England winning or being second. No, it's very difficult. I don't think I've got any real regrets. What I want to start now, just maybe, you know, you might ask me a question, but recently I've had a piece in the paper regarding um, doing some uh, academy work. What I want to start before I resign, eventually is to try to get um, an academy of youth especially, but also of ladies and of uh, all anglers, because you've highlighted it once or twice in your questions about the, um, not so much a restriction, but the inability to be able to fish competitions to international rules in England, because there is nobody there to run them. International competitions are totally and utterly different to uh, anything that we run in England, and so... I want an academy. We've got some level two, level three coaches, which is a pathway that the uh, Anglin Development Board are now looking at for Sport England. And if I can get these coaches together and get 10, 20 anglers of all types, uh, ladies, vets, disabled, the whole lot, juniors, if I can get them together and run this academy, it would be a highlight of my career, that. Would that really make such a big difference? I'm sure it will. Simply because, listen, we, we, we can't get much better, but we can get better. And for future success, you shouldn't just sit back on your laurels. The fact that we won one, two, three major championships this year and been on the podium in others, we shouldn't sit back and think that's it. We should be looking at the way to become even more professional with the limited funds that we've got. And the way to do that is to have a coaching facility similar to what the, again, I'm referring to football, but that is what they do. Each club now has uh, the facility to teach youngsters, etc. And that's what I want to do. I want to be able to get these together. Again, it will be a limited number of uh, attendances because of the cost. But if I can get uh, the likes of Joe Roberts and Steve Sanders and Mark Downs, etc. And there are one or two others, Des Ship, who are level two, level three coaches. If I can get them to pass on their vast knowledge of information to 16, 18, 20-year-olds, to the ladies, to the veterans, to the disabled, then it can only breed success. A very candid, and I have to say optimistic assessment, and one certain to make any red-blooded Englishman, never mind English course angler, feel justifiably proud, particularly when having handed the reins over to Mark Downs and Mark Addy, not only did they preside over routing the French in France back in 2001, 
but amidst a wealth of other successes, also added the 2013 team gold medal again to the list just a few weeks ago in Poland. So a very big thank you on behalf of everyone to Dick Clegg for sowing those seeds of success and for taking the time out of what I know remains a very busy schedule to talk to us here today.